Oh Lord our God, just now we heard of that incident in our Lord Jesus' life. How he dealt with a woman caught wet hot in her sin. How wisely and graciously our Lord Jesus dealt with her, sending her away without condemning her, but warning her sin no more. So Lord, we pray that we may know your grace, receive your love, and be gracious, kind, forgiving, wise as our Lord Jesus. As we endeavor to open up your word, we pray that you may give the preacher wisdom to expand your word and apply your truth graciously. And we pray that we may receive the message of grace and be messengers of your word of grace. Oh, bless us as we consider afresh what a God of grace you are and the message that we are to carry to the end of the world. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Let us turn back to Isaiah chapter 1. Our text tonight is in verse 18. Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are wet like crimson, they shall be as wool. Dear friends, we live in an increasingly immoral and broken world. There are so many broken relationships, and there are many more broken lives. Many children, by the age of 12 or 13, their minds are already polluted but all kinds of fields. Once the heart and mind got polluted, they tend to stay like that for a long time. And by the age of 16 or 17, many bodies have already been defiled as well. We see our culture sinking ever deeper to the bottomless pit of moral fields and seemingly no return. Just look at how many public figures in the Western countries have their past life dug up for public consumption and trial by media or worse still, by social media. One just wonder, in the future, who will be fit 
or dare to be in the public service. Is there hope for a time like ours? The devil whisper in our ears, no, you just get worse and worse. But how much worse? What message are we to bring to people whose lives are broken and defiled? It does look like for gospel workers, our work is going to be more and more difficult and challenging. We have to deal with people whose minds, whose thinking are so polluted and defiled and their lives as well. Our text tonight is so precious and helpful against that backdrop of our time and culture. And we do remember our text tonight has been used by God down through the ages to bring about a change of many lives from hopelessness to wholesomeness, from defilement to purity. The Lord God is here inviting his people to have a conference with him. He asked them to think together with him and talk the matter of their relationship with him out. Look at it. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Literally, please, or come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. This is the Lord God Almighty, the Holy One of Israel, inviting his foolish and ignorant people to reason together with him. Sit down, let's have a conference, let's talk this matter out. We notice tonight firstly that biblical religion is a thinking religion. The first thing we are to do in sharing the gospel is to ask people to think. Whether those people are highly educated or with limited education. We ask people in the name of God that they should sit down and think with God and to think correctly. It's quite interesting to meet up with people within the church, Christian friends, and I've met people like you perhaps, who are believers, but who do not want a thinking Christianity. They want an unthinking Christianity. I recall my wife and I were doing a, a Bible study with a visiting scholar from another country and, and she was a, a real scholar and we were trying to introduce her to the system of truth, what we may call the reformed faith or not so good a term, Calvinism 
biblical Christianity, I prefer to call that. And uh, we could see her face change from gladness to uneasiness. And we stopped and asked her, what's the matter? And she said, well, now you are trying to impose a whole system of thought upon me. I come from a communist country. I've been educated with a whole system of thought called Marxism, and I hate it. But now you're imposing another system of thought that would like to direct and control all my thinking, all my life. And I don't want that. She said, when I go to church, I want to have some comforting word to have my emotion uh, soothe and please and help. And I don't want that. Well, eventually she appreciated what we were trying to do and we confessed to her, yes, yes, we are uh, bringing to you this whole system of thought. This is the whole biblical system of thought. Yes, it is a system. Yes, it informs your mind. It directs your life for every aspect of your life. Now, many Christians, when they go to church, they just want to have an emotional release. We want to have our emotions stir up with jokes and drama and music and dance, maybe smoke as well. We are stressful enough in our work. Yes, we may be highly educated, uh, but we have high demanding job and we have to do our thinking and arguing and writing. When we come to church, we just want to unburden ourselves. We don't want to think, we don't want to have sustained thinking when we come to church. We want just to have a, to have a nice and easy, non-confrontational Christianity. Well, there's no such thing as a nice and easy, non-confrontational Christianity. That is not the biblical religion. Now look at the people of Israel in the days of Isaiah. They were having quite a lot of religion. But they were having an unthinking religion. Look at verse 11. God is saying here, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fat cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or the lambs or goats. You heard that? The people of Israel, they were bringing to God a lot of animal sacrifices. Upon the, in the law of Moses, they brought in the blood of the bulls the lambs and the goats, and you realize this is very costly worship. If tonight we come together and we have to bring sacrificial animals, how much is a bull? How much is a lamb? As we offer those blood of the animals, we notice this is very expensive. 
In other words, I'm giving a lot, a lot of my money to God. Go on in verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my cords? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbath, and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity at the sacred meeting. Yes, you come to me, but these sacrifices are futile, expensive, sweet spelling incense. It's an abomination. It's an offense to me. And your festivals. I cannot endure your assembly. Can you imagine God saying to his people, your worship, I can't endure. I can't endure your persistent iniquity, sinning against me, and your assembly. Verse 14. Your new moons and your ponder feast, my soul hates. They are trouble to me, and we will bury them. This is very strong language, isn't it? God hates the worship of his own chosen people. God says, your worship is a trouble to me. I get weary in your worship. Well, some people may come to church weary. And they may get tired at the long sermon or the drawn out worship. But God is here saying, I get tired of your assembly, of your worship. I can't bear that. They're a burden to me. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Isn't that so terrible? These people are praying people. We complain that the prayer meeting is much neglected in the modern church. But these people are coming to the prayer meeting. And they are very emotional in spreading out their hands to God. Oh, we may see Christian people lifting up their hands and crying in tears in their prayers. That by itself means nothing. There can be believers who pray in tears every time they pray, but their lives may completely deny the Christian faith. It's possible, I've seen it. We can be easily deceived by emotions and tears. We may think immediately if someone comes along to the prayer meeting and prays in tears, wow, that must be a very godly person. Prayers by themselves means nothing. The people of Israel had a mindless worship. 
They were not using their mind, their thinking in worship. They have the correct form of prescribed worship. Prayer, sacrifices, festival, and sat down in the law of Moses. But their worship was completely rejected by God. And they did not know it. Have we ever wondered how come our prayers are not heard? Yes, it could be in God's sovereignty. But could it not also be there's something wrong in our own lives? And the people of God here, they were not even aware that the calamities they have been facing were actually the judgment of God. Look at verse 7. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned to fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Sion is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. The people of God were not aware when they faced so many calamities in their national life that they were overrun by foreigners, that their houses were burned, that they were besieged by enemies. And Isaiah could say in verse 9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become, we would have been made like Gomorrah. Isn't that unthinkable to those who heard the prophet Isaiah? What? We're like Sodom and Gomorrah. What, what insult you gave us. Now the Lord God asks his people, Hear my people. Come now and let's reason together. Let's talk together about your relationship with me. Go back to the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy. It's really grand, isn't it? Uh, Isaiah got 66 chapters. Uh, it's, a, it's a long prophecy, divided in different parts, but it begins prophecy with a grand opening. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken, I've nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey is master's queen. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Isaiah begins his prophecy by calling heaven and earth to witness Israel's relationship with the covenant Lord. 
Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And then, in the name of the Lord, he says to the people, Don't you realize you are my children? And you are my people? Even the ox and the donkey know their masters, who their owner are. But you do not know. Now this, of course, is speaking first of all to the church, isn't it? And here we are in the church. We belong to the Christian church, but do we know our Lord? Do you own God to be your master? Can we truly say, well, yes, I'm not just a Christian by name, but I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. My whole life is under Christ. I'm a man, I'm a woman under order. Whatever I may do, whatever I may say, whatever I may think, I'm under my Lord. I'm not a free agent. No. And when my Lord who comes to me and speak to me and demand of me, well, I stand ready to yield to my Lord as obedience servant. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, with all to the Lord, implicit obedience in everything. Not just in our outward action, but our inner thoughts, in our desires, in our emotions, in what we say, we are under the Lordship of Christ. And then we can bring this message to the world. We can say by extension to the whole world, we all men, women, are making God's image, we are made by Him and for Him, and yes, in a general sense, we are all God's children. We are all God's people. We live in a time when the culture in the world says something like this to us. Well, you keep your Christianity within the four walls of your church. I have my religion, I have my thinking, but don't you impose on us. And the one thing that Western culture hates so much is Christian evangelism. It's our endeavor to convert people, unbelievers, to faith in Christ. I don't know how you would handle this situation, but I remember when I was knocking at people's doors, people asked me, what are you up to? What do you want? Well, not being a clever person, and I was not doing a survey, uh, I just say to them, well, uh, I want to tell you God's love. Yes, I wanted to become Christian. I want to share with you the gospel. That's what I'm up to. Well, I thought, well, at least I'm honest. Now, it's that sort of thing that is 
intolerable in our times. I find usually I can detain uh, people coming from uh, England for at least uh, three to five minutes at their door. I say, well, uh, I, I would just like to, to tell you what message your ancestor brought to my ancestors. Uh, just, just stand here. Uh, I just want to thank you uh, to your ancestors, how, how they went to China, how to share the gospel, quit the Christian message with my ancestors, and then I would just go on for two or three or three to five minutes uh, like that. But people hate it. People cannot tolerate it. Not in Australia. And we make a racist remark, not among white Australians. I find Muslims more respectful. Oh yes, well, we, we, we respect Jesus. Uh, I find people from other religions uh, more polite. When you meet up with white Australian people, somehow, they thought you are committing a great evil. Are you trying to convert me? And we have to say yes. Because we are all made by the God of the Bible. We are all these people in that general sense. And we are called to serve Him. But we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've broken our relationship with God, and from that comes all kinds of wrongs and evils and filth and dirt in human society. Have we not witnessed in the history of Western civilization? Not too long ago, Westerners, they denied the Bible. But they would still be, still wanted to be known as Christian. They said we would keep the morals of the Bible. We will be honest, upright, uh, faithful to our spouses. We don't need Moses. We don't need Paul. We don't need the supernatural Jesus. And I've met such people. Uh, a few generations ago, many Westerners, they were upright and honest. They won't cheat in their crimes. They were not money-loving people. They loved their wives. Society was rather stable. Yes, but what do we see? When the foundation is destroyed, what can the righteous do? It would be absolute horror to those 19th century theological liberals to see what is happening in Britain, in Holland, in Germany, not to mention America or France. It will be unbelievable. 
Absolutely unbelievable. I read Christian books making comments like this in English. They say, well, such blasphemy and abuse of the names of God and Christ could only happen in France. It could never happen in England, in Scotland. Not too long ago, if you abuse God's name like that, it was not tolerable in English-speaking countries. But what are we seeing now? When we see what is happening in Scotland, I feel John Knox would jump up from his grave and take a sword. Unthinkable, isn't it? But it is happening before our own eyes. Judgment has come, and eventually, final judgment will come. But is there hope? Look at our text. Come now, and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are wet like crimson, they shall be as wool. What a promise. One commentator, a reputable Old Testament commentator, says, Red is the color of selfish, covetous, passionate life, which is self-seeking in its nature, which go out of itself only to destroy and drive about with wild, tempestuous violence. Red is the color of wrath and sin. Sin is called red inasmuch as it is a burning heat which consumes a person and when it breaks forth, consumes others as well. Well, red is the color of passion and violence. It is the color of murder. Yesterday I received an email from a bookseller and he says, well, he's, ce he's celebrating anthropology. I thought, well, it's interesting if I look at some of these books. And to my horror, I just can't believe my eyes what sort of books people are reading. And they are not top sellers and they are calling our women to be wild, to be untamed. I can't give you the details. I certainly don't want to read the details. But this is our culture, isn't it? Red. Blood red. Burning heat. Busting out. It first of all consumes the person. And then it consumes the other people. Isn't it ironic? that we are saying we must respect women. We must respect others. But where's the foundation? Well, the promise here is this. Though your sin are like scarlet, red like crimson, they shall be as white 
as snow. What a picture. I remember my first and only time in the Stony Mountain. I was standing on a, on a hilltop. Uh, without proper preparation, I, I didn't know what, what I was getting into. But I, I stood there, I looked down, I said, yeah, I remember this text in Isaiah. As white as snow, all that my eye could see is snow white, it's really white. God is here promising not just forgiveness, but actual cleansing. Not just the covering up of sins, sweeping it under the carpet, but the washing away of all the filth and dirt. One thing I love to see, you may think of some strange taste, well I do. I love to see, you know this high pressure, water jetting, got a dirty a floor and use this machine and then after 10 minutes, half an hour, it's all clean. Wonderful machine. How can this be? Well, let us look at it. God himself is committed to do it. In verse 27, God says, Sion, well Isaiah says in the name of God, Sion shall be redeemed with justice and a penitent with righteousness. God himself is going to do it with justice, with righteousness. God in his righteousness will do this. God is committed to do this. And it is in God's own character to forgive and to cleanse sin. Psalm 30. You remember that? Out of the death, I've cried to you, O Lord. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. There is forgiveness with God. This is the message we must believe and we must bring it to a broken world where we say to people, there is forgiveness with God. Believe Him. You may have a broken life. Your body might be defiled from days of youth until now, but there is forgiveness with God. And Nehemiah 9, 17, I really love this one. I love Psalm 130 as well. But there, in Nehemiah, verse 19, it says to God, But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in mercy, abundant in kindness. I especially love that. Uh, but you are God, ready to pardon, literally in Hebrew, but you, the God of forgiveness. For those of you who know Hebrew, check me out. I got a Hebrew text here before me. You are the God of forgivenesses. You are the God of pardons. It's in the plural. As if we don't get it. We can't translate this into English. We can't say God is the God of pardons. 
and forgivenesses. But in case we don't get it, God said it like this in His Word. He's a God of pardons. God's almighty power will bring it about. Nothing is too hard for God. And it is in the deepest heart and desire of God to reconcile sinners to Himself. God's reconciliation with rebels is the Bible storyline. You know, friends, have you ever thought like this? The Bible is a very interesting book. Never say it's bored. I recently came across a Chinese author who has written hundreds of fictions. And many of them are quite unworthy, terrible. Uh, science fiction, and I've never read any of his writing, uh, never heard of his name uh, because I'm so ignorant of this whole thing. But apparently, he is very famous. And he said to become a Christian. I don't know whether he's truly converted, he's a really <laughs> unusual guy, uh, really uh, funny sort of person. But one thing he said is really interesting. He says, the Bible is so interesting. He himself written hundreds of books, hundreds of fictions, and he's written the script for four to five hundred Chinese movies in the sixties. And he says, the Bible is so interesting. It's from someone who knows how to write story. And the Bible story is so interesting. But what is it about? It's about God's reconciliation with rebellious people. The rest of Isaiah is going to introduce us to the Savior. First of all, Isaiah introduces us to the Messiah. Great David's greatest son. He's to be the God-man. Remember that Christmas text? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Savior is to be king. He's to be great David's greatest son. Yes, he's to be, he's to be the Messiah. And he's to be the God-man. It's the God-man who will save. And then, of course, you know, later on in Isaiah's prophecy, we have the suffering servant. The servant poems or servant songs. And especially Isaiah 53, by his wounds we are healed. All we like should have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The God-man, the Messiah, is going to be the suffering servant. And then, in Isaiah 63, we have a blood-stained conqueror. This very unusual figure is robe stained with blood and he came to save his own needy people. If we may sum up the rest of the message of the Bible, it is this. It is by the blood of Christ 
that we are close. As Isaiah says here in verse 27, Zion will be redeemed, will be purchased back. What is the purchase price? He doesn't say. He doesn't say, but with justice and the penitent with righteousness. Justice must be done. Sin must be punished. Righteousness must be fulfilled. How are we to be cleansed? By blood. What a strange way to to do washing, is that? You got something very dirty? As I mentioned, dirty floor with grim and dirt. Cleanse it by blood. Yes, the human heart is to be cleansed by blood. The blood of the Lamb. As we are told in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5, to him who love us and wash us from our sins in his own blood. At the beginning of our worship, in our call to worship, in our call to worship, uh, the redeemed are arrayed in white robes, and these are those who have washed their robes and make them white in the blood of the Lamb. We are to be washed by the blood of Christ. Forgiveness and cleansing of sin is offered to all. But you know, as I do, not all accept the offer. What are we to do? Well, you and I have to learn to take the blood of Christ and apply it to our defiled conscience so that our conscience may be cleansed from dead works to serve the living God. Oh friends, learn how to be washed by Jesus' blood. How to have a blood-washed conscience. Only the blood of Christ and cleanses from all sins. I know of a, a lady who claimed to be a believer. The poor woman had a terrible life. The last I was talking to her, she was still drunk. She would get up in the morning and then so get drunk. But she always talk about the blood of Jesus. She had a terrible life. Stained and defiled by all kinds of sins. I really desire that she really know the blood cleansing power of Jesus. I detail you can't be like this and be a Christian. 
You can't keep on getting drunk. And then you say you apply the blood of Christ to your conscience. You must forsake your joy. So when I asked a Christian friend, should I give up drinking? I told her, you have to give up drinking completely. Immediately. She asked a Christian friend and they all laughed. So no, we can join. There is one more thing we must know. To be washed by the blood of Christ, we must go to God by the way of repentance. In verse 16, Isaiah says, Wash yourself, make yourself clean, put away the evil of your doings from before your eyes, cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, rebuild the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. We are not to stay in our disobedience to God anymore, not even for a single minute. I will end with verse 27 again. Sion shall be redeemed with justice and a penitence with righteousness. You know that word penitence is a big word. What does it mean? Well, in the Hebrew is very simple. It is the returning ones. Those who turn from sin and self and those who turn to God asking for forgiveness and cleansing. To them, though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Let's pray. Jesus God and Heavenly Father, we are confronted day by day by the filth and the dirt and the rebellion in this world. The devil tempts us to despair, but Lord your word assures us there's nothing too hard for you. You can make the foulest clean. This is our hope. This is our confidence. And Lord, we bring before you our own Western civilization. Our own once Christian nations. Australia. Germany. The Netherlands, 
Scotland, England, America, yay, even New Zealand. We have turned our backs on you. We have been foolish. We sold for the wind and we weep well wind. And Lord, we humbly acknowledge our civilization cannot go on like this anymore. It's on the brink of collapse. We pray that you may intervene. We pray that in your wrath you may remember mercy. We pray that you may strengthen us. That we may be your witnesses to a dying culture. To wheel people who are steep in sin and rebellion. And that you may give us courage to reason with people, to talk with people, to urge people to faith and repentance. And Lord, help us to pray. We pray that you may yet revive your church. We rejoice before your God that here we are hearing you are working mightily in other parts of the world. Oh God, among many of the poorer people in the world, they have been stirred to seek your face. And you are doing wonders. We pray that you may advance your kingdom. We do pray for believers who are downcast, who are sick, and believers who are incarcerated in prison, for believers who have been kicked out of their families, O oh Lord, we pray that they may have your special presence. And we pray that you may strengthen us in the coming week to be your witnesses at home, at work, no matter what we may do. Help us to glorify you, whether we eat or drink. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.